This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and terrorism that some people may find upsetting. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. After an explosion at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, on September 15, 1963, 14-year-old Carolyn Mall was in shock. She had been at the church that day to volunteer, to pray, to chat with her friends. She never expected to find herself in the midst of a tragedy. Carolyn escaped the wreckage, but she had no idea where her two younger brothers, Wendell and Kirk, were. Her eyes lit up when she saw her father standing outside at a police barricade. He was shouting, let me through, I've got two children in there. Carolyn wasn't sure why he said he had only two children. There had been three of them at the church that day. Carolyn, Wendell, and Kirk. Had her father already received bad news about one of them? She ran to her dad and cried out that she couldn't find either little brother. Her father gently explained that Wendell was safe in the car. Carolyn let out a big sigh of relief. But they still needed to find Kirk. Welcome to Survival on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our second of two episodes on Carolyn Mall, a 1960s civil rights activist who survived a KKK-planted bomb in her church when she was 14 years old. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkcast.com slash merch for more information.
On the morning of September 15, 1963, after a bomb exploded at the 16th Street Baptist Church, the church lawn was a scene of chaos. Carolyn Mall had escaped the church building and made it safely outside to her father. Right after the bomb exploded, Carolyn's two brothers scattered outside the church and mixed in with the crowd. Wendell, the older of the two, bolted down the street. He passed by the screaming crowds on the church lawn and the debris rolling by the curb. He passed by the storefronts of downtown. It was there that his father found him. He stepped out of the car and held his son tight before gently ushering him into the car. Carolyn's father decided to bring the two children, Carolyn and Wendell, home so the family could regroup there. Rescue efforts were underway. Almost everyone had been able to make it out of the church alive. However, four people were killed and 20 people in total were injured. That was in part because the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing was caused by a few sticks of dynamite rather than a more complex explosive device. The explosion from dynamite is created by a less volatile chemical reaction than what is seen in modern-day IEDs. The bomb was also placed in a small area, the girls' bathroom, rather than up in the sanctuary where more people gathered. But this was small consolation, as the girls' bathroom is where Carolyn's friends, Addie, Denise, Carol, Cynthia, and Addie's sister Sarah, had been. They'd been standing near the window, which is especially dangerous during an explosion. The glass in a window can break very easily from the pressure of a bomb. When a bomb explodes, it's best to take cover under any surface you can find and to move as far away from windows as possible. But this wasn't possible in the small room, nor would they have had time to take cover before the bomb went off. During the explosion, glass flew into Sarah's eyes. She couldn't see a thing. She cried out for help and didn't hear any of the other girls respond. She was alone and in pain with no idea what was happening to her. As her mind raced, she wondered if anyone from the church would come to help. Meanwhile, Carolyn Mall reached her home, running into her mother's open arms. She was so happy to be home, to be away from the terror of the bombed-out church. Carolyn's mother squeezed her daughter tight. She turned to her husband and said that a man had just called. He had Kirk with him. The third Mall child was safe. Carolyn caught her father's eye, and they shared a moment of relief. They had been right to come home and await word. When the bomb first exploded, Wendell ran off alone, but Kirk found comfort in the first person he saw. He ran outside the church and grabbed a stranger's leg. He refused to say a word, and he refused to let go. No matter how much the man tried to shake him, Kirk stayed by his side. The man had no choice but to bring Kirk to his home. He finally was able to get Kirk to reveal his last name was Maul. They looked up the family number in the phone book. When Kirk came back home a little before 12 o'clock in the afternoon, he was unusually quiet. He barely spoke at all. Kirk would remain forever changed by that September morning. 
He seemed to have lost his desire to speak from that day forward. Even his teachers would tell the malls that he seemed like a smart boy, but he just didn't talk. According to a 2006 study by Dr. J. Douglas Bremner, traumatic situations can cause permanent damage to several areas of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for the expression of appropriate behavior. It's possible that the trauma of the bombing damaged Kirk in such a way. But on the afternoon of the 15th, everyone in the family was quiet. They sat in stunned silence, not sure what to make of the fact that their church had been bombed. Carolyn thought back to all the time she spent at the 16th Street Baptist Church, all the afternoons she spent laughing with her friends, all the sermons she heard from Reverend Cross, all the protests and marches that were organized there. Dr. King had given a speech at the March on Washington just a few weeks before the bombing on August 28, 1963. Carolyn had listened to it and was moved by it. Dr. King spoke of a brighter future, one that would bring equality and safety to America's children. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Around one o'clock in the afternoon, on September 15th, just a couple hours after the bombing, the telephone rang in the Mall household. Carolyn's mother answered, and Carol Robertson's mother, Alpha, was at the other end. She asked if Carolyn was home, and when Mrs. Mall said yes, she said, quote, Well, if your Carolyn is home, maybe my Carol went home with somebody from church. Carolyn had an uneasy feeling. She was supposed to go to her Cavalettes meeting at 3 p.m. that afternoon. And if it were any normal day, she would have seen Carol there. Somehow she knew that she wouldn't see her there today. The Cavalettes was a group of about 15 girls in Birmingham who got together to socialize each week. Carolyn was the president of the club. The group had ordered matching gold caps and shirts with their names printed on them. They were supposed to collect the money for them that Sunday, so they'd be ready for them to wear next week. But Carolyn didn't even attempt to mention her Cavalettes meeting to her parents. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the telephone rang again. Mrs. Mall picked it up. When Mrs. Mall returned to her family, she held Carolyn's shoulder tightly as she announced the news. The four girls who had been in the women's restroom were killed by the bomb. Addie, Denise, Carol, and Cynthia. Immediately, Carolyn felt a loss greater than anything she had ever known. And in the pit of her stomach, Carolyn knew she could have just as easily been in the bathroom with those girls when the bomb exploded. When the bomb exploded, the four girls were in the women's restroom along with Addie's sister, Sarah. A few moments after the explosion, Sarah called out for her sister. A deacon in the church had gone back inside to search the building and he heard Sarah's cries. He found her covered in debris and carried her to the ambulance waiting outside. Sarah was luckier than her sister. 
Two other deacons ran in to search through the rubble with their bare hands. They dug and dug and dug until finally someone saw a hand sticking out from the debris. They kept digging and found the four girls laying on top of one another, completely lifeless. Back in the ambulance, Sarah's fate still hung in the balance. At that point, hospitals in Birmingham were segregated by race. White hospitals tended to provide better, more reliable care. Sarah was in such a dire state that she needed only the best doctors. So the ambulance took her to the whites-only university hospital. A white nurse named Jim Jones admitted Sarah, purposefully breaking the segregation laws. It was a rare moment of positivity and hope on an otherwise dark day for the civil rights movement. Sarah would be hospitalized for two months. She ended up losing one eye completely and retaining only partial vision in the other. She left the hospital with one glass eye, which she would forever call her drugstore eye. In the 1960s, mass-produced glass eyes were made in shades of green, blue, and light brown. They weren't made in colors like dark brown and black. Sarah would make it through life with mismatched eyes, one of the many challenges ahead of her. Back in her kitchen, after hearing the horrible news about her friends, all Carolyn could think about were the matching caps and t-shirts they had ordered for their Cavalettes Club. They were supposed to pick up their shirts next week. They were supposed to all be alive to do that together. As Carolyn thought about what was supposed to be, she also thought about what she could have done differently that morning. Earlier in the day, there had been those mysterious phone calls to the church, the threatening ones that had Mabel Shorter in the church office so worried. And then there was the call that Carolyn herself answered. Three minutes. Had the phone call been a warning? Why hadn't Carolyn done anything about it? What could she have done? The weight of Carolyn's guilt welled up inside her. Her friends were gone and she had somehow survived. After the break, we'll find out if the community was able to rebuild from this incident and if they ever caught the men responsible. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On September 15, 1963, a bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, outraged a community that already had much to be outraged about. Four girls died, and another was nearly blinded. The Birmingham World published a story about the bombing on September 18th. They wrote, Four or more who were attending Sunday school at 16th Street Baptist Church on the day of sorrow and shame 
were killed. Their bodies were stacked up on top of each other like bales of hay from the crumbling ruins left by the dynamiting. This will be an unforgettable day in our nation, in world history, in the new rebellion of which the Confederate flags seem to symbolize. Carolyn couldn't believe that such violence had taken place in their church, which had always been a special, safe place. And she couldn't believe that she had been so close to death herself. A voice inside her head kept saying, quote, They missed you this time, Carolyn, but the girls are dead. You were there. You talked with them right before they died. The night of September 15th, the doors of the 16th Street Baptist Church were closed to the public for the first time ever. And for the next eight months, there were no church services. Instead, the community rebuilt. Carolyn and the rest of the church members all worshipped at the nearby L.R. Hall Auditorium while their church was reconstructed. The survivors felt the great void left by the four girls. Just as Carolyn felt lost after losing her four friends, the whole city felt lost in the aftermath of such tragedy. Would things ever change? The 16th Street Baptist Church gave each girl's family some money for funeral arrangements. Addie, Denise, and Cynthia's families all chose to have a joint ceremony, while Carol's mother wanted to grieve in a less public way. The joint funeral was attended by over 8,000 people, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Carolyn couldn't bring herself to attend the funerals. She couldn't face the rows of small coffins, knowing her friends were inside them and that she could have easily been right next to them. Later, she heard from someone else about the speech Dr. King gave at the funeral for the three girls. He said, quote, these girls are now committed back to that eternity from which they came. These children, unoffending, innocent, and beautiful, were the victims of one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetrated against humanity. And yet, they died nobly. They are the martyred heroines of a holy crusade of freedom and human dignity. Carolyn thought her life would return to some sense of normalcy, but the memory of the bombings hung over her still. It was everywhere around her. She was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. When someone suffers a traumatic event, they can experience PTSD symptoms, which can include depression, anxiety, and frightening thoughts relating to the event. According to a 2010 study done in part by psychology professor John Cacioppo, loneliness has a big effect on how people deal with PTSD. People who have a network of friends are able to recover more easily than those who are alone. But Carolyn's friends were the very people she was mourning. She had no one she could connect with. She also had reminders of the bombing everywhere around her. Her survival became that much more difficult as she undertook the grieving process by herself. This would only intensify as investigations into the crime began. The immediate question was, of course, who was responsible? There were many suspects. 
Racism was rampant in Birmingham in the middle of the 20th century. It was normalized through segregation laws that had only recently been contested in the courts. These policies would not be completely defeated until a year after the bombing, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Until then, public spaces like restaurants, train stations, and restrooms were all segregated by race. The Ku Klux Klan terrorized the homes of anyone who acted against this injustice. The night before the church bombing, witnesses saw four white men in a car parked a block from the church. They seemed to be observing the comings and goings of the neighborhood. One of the men in the car had already been identified by witnesses as Dynamite Bob Chambliss. He was a known white supremacist. According to the FBI case file, FBI agents arrived in Birmingham almost immediately and worked the case through September and October. They visited black homes throughout Birmingham, where they discovered the Bob Chambliss connection. Shortly after the bombing, two FBI agents arrived at the mall household and questioned the three kids who were at the church that morning, Wendell, Kirk, and Carolyn. When it was Carolyn's turn, she sat right between her two parents while the agents questioned her. Carolyn gave them all the details she could recall, but they seemed disinterested. They barely took notes, even when Carolyn told them about the phone call she received right before the bombing, the one with the voice saying, three minutes. The FBI promised the public that they would find the killers. But whenever people in the Birmingham community would call to look for an update on the case, they got a simple answer of, the FBI is working on it. Meanwhile, Carolyn's fear intensified. Each night, she would go to sleep worried that another bomb was going to come for her next. After the FBI finished interviewing the people of Birmingham, they sent a memorandum of their findings to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. They said that their main suspects were four Ku Klux Klan members, Robert Chambliss, and three other men named Bobby Cherry, Herman Cash, and Thomas Blanton Jr. All four men were members of Birmingham's Cahaba River Group, a splinter group of the Eastview Clavern No. 13 chapter of the KKK. Chambliss had told his niece before the day of the bombing, just wait until Sunday morning and they'll beg us to let them segregate. It seemed like clear evidence of guilt. On September 29, 1963, Chambliss and Cage were arrested and charged with illegal possession of dynamite. They were fined $100 each and sentenced to 180 days in jail. But besides that small punishment, there were no other arrests or sentencings. According to FBI reports, Hoover, quote, didn't think the evidence was there to convict. The men who committed the horrific hate crime walked free. In her memoir, While the World Watched, Carolyn wrote, quote, I felt numb. Do churches get bombed and children get killed, and then we all go on living life as usual? Is this just another day in the lives of black people in Birmingham? End quote. She went to school and told a friend that she felt bad, and the friend responded by saying that she was making more out of the bombing than she should. Carolyn mourned silently, 
alone. Carolyn also wrote that, quote, whatever excitement and girlish joy I felt before the bombing simply died for a long period after the bombing. My heart built a barrier that sealed off my hope, my happiness, and my very soul, just like the wall the church had built to seal off the restroom where the four girls perished, end quote. Carolyn walked through life with an awareness of death that no young girl should have. She mostly wanted to spend her time alone, and she worried that more violence was coming after her at any moment. Her PTSD symptoms were intensifying. For many who suffer from this condition, self-harm or substance abuse become ways of coping. They place the individual in even more danger. These feelings were intensified by a sense that the very government itself was against her. Alabama Governor George Wallace appeared on the cover of the September 27, 1963 issue of Time magazine after he physically blocked black students from entering white public schools. On the magazine cover, his face appears stern and tight-lipped in front of the 16th Street Church's cracked and broken stained glass image of Jesus. The headline read, Alabama, Civil Rights Battlefield. As great a foe as Wallace was, the people of Birmingham at least had President John F. Kennedy to stand up for them. The night of the 27th, Carolyn and her family gathered around the television to watch the president respond to Wallace's actions. Kennedy was a huge proponent of integration. In his speech, he said, It ought to be possible for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated. But this is not the case. In her memoir, Carolyn said that Kennedy's speech that night made her love and admire him more than ever before. Unfortunately, that sense of comfort and hope didn't last very long. On November 22, 1963, just a few weeks after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. After Kennedy died, no one talked about it with Carolyn. She waited for the adults around her to help her deal with her grief, but the same thing happened that had happened after the bombing. No one said anything. Once again, Carolyn was left to deal with her sadness alone. In 2008, researchers in South Africa published a study on the effects multiple tragedies have on sufferers of PTSD. Cumulative traumatic events can have a greater negative impact on a person, as the negative effects like depression and anxiety pile up with each event. Few adults could survive this level of trauma, much less a child. Carolyn's trauma would only get worse. In Birmingham, the violence was just beginning. In April 1964, Carolyn woke in the middle of the night to an all-too-familiar, earth-shattering sound. Another bomb had gone off. This time, it was right next to her home. After the break, we'll talk about the continued violence in Birmingham in the 1960s and find out how the case of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing was finally closed. Now back to the story. 
In April 1964, Carolyn Mall and her family were woken up by the sound of yet another bomb going off in Birmingham, Alabama. Carolyn jumped out of bed the second she heard the explosion. She rushed to her window and saw that smoke was coming out of the house across the street, the Crowell House. According to Carolyn's memoir, the Crowell family was different from other black families in the neighborhood. Carolyn wrote about Mrs. Crowell and said, she marched to a different beat. She pulled her long, thick hair back into a ponytail and wore unusual dresses and skirts with colorful printed patterns. She didn't talk like any of us either. Someone told me with a smirk that she was cultured. Right away, the neighborhood assumed that the Crowells had been targeted because of these differences. After the explosion, Carolyn's family and neighbors stood in the street to check on the bombed house, and she was crying out that her husband and son were still inside their home. Someone called the Birmingham police, and the neighbors waited impatiently for them to arrive. They were worried that there was another bomb planted in the house and that it could go off at any minute. They could never be sure what to expect and kept back from the building. This was a wise survival tactic. After a bomb detonation, a key survival tactic is to flee the area as soon as possible. Falling debris and the threat of further explosions make the area very dangerous. But in the case of the Crowells, everyone needed to make sure that the entire family was safe before they could leave the site of the bombing. The neighbors waited, smoke billowing down the street. Mrs. Crowell cried out for her family, reaching her hands out helplessly towards the house. Finally, Mrs. Crowell's husband and son walked out on their own. They had somehow slept through the explosion and luckily were unharmed. The police arrived and assessed the situation, discovering that the bomb had torn through multiple homes in the neighborhood. Windows were broken and neighbors were scared, but luckily, no one was hurt. Even more fortunate, no other bombs had been planted. Still, the day after the bombing, the Crowells packed up their things and left Birmingham, hoping to leave it and the racial violence behind. Who could blame them for leaving in search of a better chance of survival? That same day in April, Governor Wallace arrived in the city. He met with concerned citizens and promised that the authorities would find who planted the bomb. The people of Birmingham knew they couldn't trust Wallace, and they were right. Little was done to investigate the bombing of the Crowell's home, and the authorities never found the people responsible. Carolyn was used to seeing crimes like this one go unsolved in Birmingham. She was still disheartened over the way the authorities handled the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, with no arrests made for the murders of the girls. There were some positive developments in relation to the church, as construction continued and neared completion. News of the bombing traveled all over the world, and empathetic people sent help. Over $300,000 were raised, and the church was able to reopen on June 7, 1964. The people of Wales donated a stained glass window designed by the artist John Petz. 
it depicts a black Jesus and still sits at the south end of the church to this day. Two parts of the church were left as they were on the morning of September 15th in order to remember that day. The first was the antique clock that hung on the sanctuary wall. During the bombing, it had remained intact but simply stopped ticking. Its hands would forever remain at 1022. The second was the women's restroom. The rubble of the room was simply sealed up with a wall in front of it. The inside of the bathroom will always remain in shambles, just as Carolyn's four friends last saw it right before they died. This helped to address the pain of the past, but it did little to help fortify the community for the future. That was up to the individuals themselves. The civil rights movement went on, with numerous sit-ins, marches, and demonstrations held in the name of equal rights for people of all races. And all the while, the KKK continued to plant bombs. Over the course of the 1960s, 45 recorded bomb attacks occurred in Birmingham. Years went by, and Carolyn helplessly witnessed violence and death. She continued to feel lost, guilty, and depressed. No one in her life would talk to her about the bombing, and so she held that sadness inside her. By February 1968, she was 20 years old and attending Fisk University in Tennessee. She met her future husband, Jerome, at the university, and they looked forward to starting a family together. But her dreams of moving on were shattered when she heard the news. The FBI formally closed its investigation of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing without filing charges against anyone. Carolyn was distraught. Was there no retribution for her friends, for little Sarah who could barely see? Carolyn was still young and only just learning that the black people of Birmingham rarely saw justice for the crimes committed against them. This lesson would come into focus for her shortly as the black community experienced the greatest injustice of all. A couple months later, on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Carolyn was devastated. She had seen so much loss in life already, and now the man she looked up to most in the world was gone. Throughout her teens, Carolyn experienced the worst that the country had to offer. She was there when police, led by Bull Connor, turned water hoses on her and her friends in the marches of 1963. She was there for the bombings of 1964, and now she had lived to see the murder of the civil rights movement's greatest leader. Many, many years would go by before the country would change enough to pursue justice for these crimes. In the meantime, Carolyn would continue to struggle with depression and eventually alcoholism. It would not be until 1977, 14 years after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, that Carolyn would have a chance to get some closure. Because in 1971, Alabama's Attorney General Bill Baxley reopened the investigation into the bombing. He vowed to solve the case. Carolyn's father called her with the news. 
Robert Chambliss, one of the men originally fined for the bombing, was going on trial, and his niece, Elizabeth Cobbs, was testifying against him. Elizabeth had secretly been working with the FBI. She told them that she heard Chambliss discussing the planting of the bomb as a threat to stop school integration. According to what Elizabeth heard Chambliss say, the bomb was actually supposed to go off early at three or four in the morning. It wasn't supposed to harm anyone, but serve as a warning. The jury didn't care. On November 18, 1977, two days after what would have been bombing victim Denise McNair's 26th birthday, Robert Chambliss was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Chambliss's conviction was just the start of a wave of justice for the victims of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. In 1993, Birmingham area black leaders secretly met with the FBI and the agents began another review of the case. And in 1998, a federal grand jury in Alabama began hearing evidence regarding the day of the attack. In 2001, Thomas Blanton Jr. was arrested and found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder for his part in the bombing. Meanwhile, Carolyn went on to live a full life. Her family grew, and she worked for 20 years at the telecommunications company Bell South. But in May 2002, less than a month before her retirement was supposed to begin, Carolyn received news that instantly brought her back to 1963. On May 2nd, 2002, the Circuit Court of Jefferson County served Carolyn with a witness subpoena in the case of the State of Alabama versus Bobby Frank Cherry. Cherry was one of the suspects in the 16th Street bombing. Carolyn was physically sick over the notion of needing to be in the same room as Cherry, over needing to relive her past. She wrote in her memoir, quote, Over the years, I had developed a certain comfort level with the painful events in the past. I'd found a way to make peace with them, to live with them. Now the old fears returned and threatened to strangle me, to sink me back into that horrible pit of depression I'd spent years struggling to climb out of. Almost four decades had passed, but in an instant, I was 15 again. On May 6, 2002, the trial took place in Birmingham. 54-year-old Carolyn was petrified. She sat at the witness stand, sweat purling at her brow. The other witnesses remained outside the courtroom, but Cherry sat across from Carolyn. He stared her down, a stern look on his stone-cold face. Carolyn could feel the hatred emanating from him. He made her nervous and scared, even all these years later. But then, Carolyn thought of her four friends who died during the bombing. They were no longer around to tell their story, but Carolyn was. Carolyn could speak her truth, the truth that had been haunting her for almost 40 years. The entire time that Carolyn was on the witness stand, Cherry continued to stare her down with only hate in his eyes and his heart. But Carolyn didn't let him shake her. She testified and made herself relive the horrors of the bombing once again. She hoped it would all be worth it. 
and it was. After the jury deliberated for seven hours over the course of two days, Cherry was convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Cherry still denied having committed his crimes, but it didn't matter. The last of the men responsible was found guilty. A few days after the trial ended, Alpha Robertson, the mother of Carolyn's friend Carol, died peacefully. It was almost as if she could finally rest now that justice had been served. With the trial over and Carolyn's retirement just beginning, she decided to go back to her roots. Carolyn began serving on the board of directors of the Civil Rights Institute, and she continued to support the 16th Street Baptist Church. All these years later, the 16th Street Baptist Church was in a state of disrepair. The roof leaked, the foundation had shifted, and the wood was rotting. After all the church had been through, Carolyn couldn't stomach the thought of it simply crumbling away. Carolyn worked with a retired president of Birmingham Southern College named Dr. Neil Burt on a fundraising campaign for the church. They contacted countless organizations and individuals within the Birmingham community, and they raised almost $4 million. Taking things even further, Carolyn petitioned to have the church declared a National Historic Landmark. In her memoir, she wrote, quote, when I stepped back and looked at the newly restored church, it truly felt like a piece of God's work of redemption. The place that had once been the site of lives lost was once again a place of new life. The place that had been a marker of hatred and despair was now a symbol of hope and reconciliation. The history and legacy of 16th Street Baptist Church would be forever visible a tall, stately sign of struggle, sacrifice, and triumph. As she healed in the years following the bombing, Carolyn found a strength she didn't know she had. She faced her fears by testifying for her lost friends. She dedicated herself to her community by refurbishing and protecting her church. Despite immense pain and suffering from a young age, Despite teetering on the edge with alcoholism and depression, she found a way to survive. Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information on Carolyn Mall and the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, Amongst many sources we used, we found Carolyn's memoir, While the World Watched, A Birmingham Bombing Survivor Comes of Age During the Civil Rights Movement, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. 
Survival is written by Sarah Halley Corey and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>